God, thank you that we, we can gather. Uh, we have a, a warm place to do that this morning. God, thanks for calling us together as your church here. And, and I, I do pray as we, as we sing over each other, as we have encouraging conversations in the hallway, uh, as we try to walk together through life with one another, um, and even as we open your word together, I pray that you would be at work in changing our hearts and minds where I say my own things. God, I pray those would be forgotten where I speak your word after you. God, I pray that you would teach, convict, shape us uh, as only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's over, friends. The series is finished on Tuesday night. The series finale of Fixer Upper was aired, and it is over. It is done. Chip and JoJo are are no more, which for some of you is heartbreaking news. This has been a hard week. Uh, and I admit, I, I'm a fan of the show. Uh, I know other, I, specifically Christians who are, it's like, it's sort of like the Chick-fil-A of, of like TV, uh, where like, because Chip and Joe are, are, are these great people, we feel like, oh, I can binge watch that on Saturday afternoon, whatever. Uh, but it's a great show. We love it for many different reasons. Uh, I saw this headline on Wednesday morning from TV Guide that says, Fixer Upper can't the fans can't stop crying about the series finale. Uh, if this is you, if you're like ugly crying at the end of this series, come talk to me. Uh, that's, that's a little bit much. But people love this show. We, we love this show, and even shows like it, uh, renovation-type shows, for a number of reasons. Chip and Joe are fun. They're talented. But really, at the end of the day, we love seeing old, forgotten things uh, kind of brought back to life, don't we? Uh, made new Again, I mean, that's, that's the before and the after. I mean, that's, uh, we're all inspired in that way. We're inspired by an incredible story of renovation. It's both the finished product and getting to see the process kind of along the way. We love to see it all. And I would argue total renovation is sort of, it resonates really deeply inside each and every one of us. It also doesn't hurt that Chip and Joe are just really lovable people. It's a fun Show And if you loved Fixer Upper, uh, you're going to be blown away by our story this morning, which is a super cheesy segue. Uh, just, just, just bear with me, okay? I'm sorry. Uh, it, was, it sounded better uh, in the first iteration. Uh, but this is an incredible story with much, much, much higher stakes and greater implications for you and for me. I mean, in a matter of 20 verses, we hear about a man who who went from persecuting Christians to becoming a preacher of Christ. It is, in many ways, one of the most unbelievable before and after snapshots in all of Scripture, a major renovation of the heart. And the question for this morning is, how does it happen? How does truly unbelievable heart change take place? And even more importantly for you and for me, how does that happen for us? I know this week as I've reflected on this story, it's become increasingly clear, I need this. My hunch is you do too. So turn to Acts 9. It's where we're going to be this morning, verses 1 through 31. We'll start in verse 1 where Luke actually picks up uh, an important character in the story that we met very briefly in chapter 8, right at the very end, a man named Saul. Luke's concluding the account of Stephen's death 
Remember the first Christian to die for the faith. We're told that Saul was there with, with two thumbs way up, right? He approved the death of Stephen. And not only that, he was actually going door to door, dragging Christians to prison. Saul is dead set against the church. Now, it feels like it's worth saying up front, I'm going to say Saul, and I'm probably going to say Paul, okay? They're, they're both the same guy. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name, and he has both for a reason. Saul was, he was a devout Jewish leader. He's invested in, in the life of Judaism, in the leadership. His door-to-door prison campaign is actually motivated by his commitment to his religious faith. But he's also a Roman citizen, influenced by Greek thought, by well-versed in rhetoric, in reason, in, in public discourse. So it's Saul and Paul. I'm going to say both. Sorry, up front. So chapter 9, verse 1, we hear that Saul is still at it. He's picking up where he left off. Chapter 8, Luke actually says he is breathing threats and murder. Literally, slaughter is on his breath. And he's taking it to the road. See, he, he was about that work in Jerusalem, the religious center for Judaism. And now he's going to another city called Damascus to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. Now, Jerusalem was the religious center, an important city, of course. Damascus was also an important hub. It was the crossroads, a commercial hub as a crossroads for Asia, for Europe, for Africa. It was an important place. It's about 175 miles north-northeast from Jerusalem. It's actually shorter than that if you were to fly there. Obviously, didn't fly there. So it's a long walk in the terrain, about 60 hours on foot, basically like going from Lawrence, Kansas to Columbia, Missouri. That's the distance. Uh, it's a road that is rarely traveled these days, but that's a, that's a different story. Um, Saul is on that road to Damascus, and he's almost there. He's got the arrest warrants in hand. He's gone to the chief priest and gotten some kind of authority. He's got papers to serve to Christians saying, I'm going to drag you back to prison, he's ready to make some noise, but something happens before he gets there. Look down to verse 3. Now as he, saw went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's an incredible scene. Uh, much more incredible than mere words can say. Actually, art, there's been many paintings of it throughout the centuries, so I'm going to throw one up there just so you can have an imagination for it. But he's on the outskirts of town. He's just about there to Damascus when all of a sudden he is swallowed up by blinding light. He's knocked to the ground, and he's summoned by name, Saul, Saul. The repetition is, it's personal, it's not meant to be harsh. In the midst of really a traumatic experience, Saul is, is called by name. And he's asked a question, why are, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? His response identifies, uh, it's, it's reverent, it's awe-struck, but he has to ask, who are you? I know you're important, but who are you? In verse 5, the response is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Talk about a stunning turn of events, right? Jesus is right there addressing him. Even while he is on his way, while Saul is on his way to, to persecute the very people that identify with this Jesus. It's a game changer. And just imagine the questions racing through Saul's mind at this point. Right, could, could this really be him? Is he really alive? Is this really happening? Am I going to die? That would have been my first thought. This is it. I'm toast. It's Jesus. If it's really Jesus, there's no way I survive this. At any rate, this moment changes everything for Saul. As tra- his travel companions are speechless, we're told. Uh, they, they, didn't even, they didn't see anything. Neither did Saul. He's blinded by the encounter. But they, they all heard everything. And Jesus tells them to, to get up, go into Damascus, go into the city, and I'll tell you what to do. And what else are you going to do when the, man who blind, when the person who blinds you tells you to do something? You're going to do it. Saul's world is turned upside down. He doesn't eat or drink or see anything for three days. But more than that, everything, everything he believes is, is now called into question. What he, the way he lived his life is now called into question. His pedigree is worthless. His, his training is meaningless. His religious zeal is consumed by the glory of a man who was dead and now isn't. Which understandably rocks his world. Now, Luke leaves Saul there, leaves him on his way into Damascus, blind, and, and now turns his attention to another important character in the story, a man named Ananias, who is not the same person from chapter 5. Uh, this is a Christian living in Damascus. God has an important part for him to play in the story as well. Look at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, which is meant to to remind us, actually, of God calling to his prophets of old in the Old Testament, Samuel, where are you? Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. It's, it's pretty incredible. They're, they're both hearing the same story at the same time. Jesus tells Ananias that he is sending Saul his way, and he wants Ananias to heal him. To which Ananias basically replies, like, come again? I, I beg your pardon? Right? Ananias has probably never, never met him. He's never seen Saul, but he watches the news, okay? Word of Stephen's death has traveled this same road from Jerusalem to Damascus. He knows what he's up to. He is hesitant to say the least, right? You want me to go to the man who is coming to arrest me? You want me to go to him? And Jesus says, yes, go. And then graciously calms his fears by explaining to him the new plan for Paul. See, Jesus says, I've got, I've got a different story for Paul. He's actually going to carry my name to the, to the nations. He's going to stand before officials, before kings, and argue for me. 
And he's going to join the ranks of those who suffer for my name. Go to him. I've got a job for you. So the renovation is underway. Ananias goes, trusting Jesus. And he tells him exactly where to go. It's a, a house owned by name, uh, a man named Judas on Straight Street. Ask for Saul from Tarsus. He knows you're coming. Here's a picture of Straight Street. It's still there today in, in Syria. Damascus is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. This is where Paul is healed. And just for a moment, put yourself in the sandals of Ananias. I mean, just imagine the trembling in your hands as you, as you approach the door. The man famous for death is on the other side. I mean, you probably circle the block a couple times, right? Just trying to work up the nerve. But you beat back the fear, the suspicion, the hatred even. And you take Jesus at his word. Look down at verse 17. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He calls him brother, Brother Saul. Hours ago, that kind of greeting was, was impossible. It was unthinkable. Not just for Ananias, but for Saul. And after, after three days of waiting in weakness, no food, no water, no sight, I imagine those were some of the most formative words that Saul's ever heard. Brother Saul, you're now part of a family. And then Dr. Luke describes what happens next. Ananias touches Saul. Something like scales fall from his eyes. Saul could, could see again. He's healed. Which actually, in some ways, that, that miraculous healing gets lost in this whole conversion account. He's he, I mean, he's blind, and now he sees. This is, an, this is an important thing. And in a sense, he actually sees for the very first time. The religious scales have have actually fallen off of his eyes, and now Saul sees Jesus for exactly who he claimed to be all along. And immediately everything changes. For Saul, he gets baptized, identifying with with Jesus and with the very people that he hated, the very people he was on a mission to imprison. Now he's saying, I'm one of them. He's a changed man. And with that change, Paul's missionary career is launched. Look at verse 20. It says, and immediately he, saw proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who, were called, who called upon his name? And hasn't he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's a story of unbelievable change. Like really unbelievable. The Damascus Christians did not believe it. They were skeptical. Understandably. But Saul is a changed man. And the question is, how? 
How do you go from persecutor to preacher? From enemy to brother? From death on your breath to raised with Jesus in baptism? How does that happen? And the answer is is simple but powerfully true. Saul is changed by a humbling encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Only when you are rightly humbled by Jesus can you experience this kind of heart change. And I'm, I'm sorry if you were hoping for something more profound than that. But that is really good news for us, friends. See, Saul, he's knocked off his feet by Jesus. Humiliated, weak, dependent. But notice how it happens. Jesus doesn't power up on Saul and execute him on the spot. Could have done that. Probably what he deserved. But instead, Jesus extends grace to him. In fact, he he changes him. The same thing he does for you and for me. And that humbling, gracious encounter with Jesus is what produces unbelievable change. And so I want to spend the rest of our time just looking at at three aspects of Saul's transformation and how we need the same change in our hearts and in our minds. So first, Jesus' encounter with Saul exposes the, the blindness of religion. Or another way to say that, Saul is changed by grace, not by achievement. Like we've already noted, Saul of Tarsus had a remarkable religious resume. He's a true member of the nation of Israel. He had a pure Hebrew heritage, which, which was a big deal in the Jewish community. He was trained from his middle school years on, probably sooner, to be a rabbi. He knew his, his Old Testament Bible backwards and follow, forwards. He, he followed it to the T. His murderous campaign against Christians was actually fueled by his religious devotion. Saul was way better at being religious than you and I. He was the best. And yet, with all of his religious devotion and theological training, he is still far from God. In fact, one of the surest ways to be far from God is by trying to be good on your own. The danger of religion. And it's no accident that Luke puts these two accounts of conversion back-to-back to to one another. Remember last week, we looked at the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't even have his name. But but he he represents the ends of the earth, far from the religious center of the world. He's an outsider with no pedigree, no ties to the people of God. The last person you would think is in. He's out. But he's looking for God. And in a crazy roadside conversation with Philip, he meets Jesus. Sure, it's quiet, it's unassuming, obscure. I mean, the Ethiopian has changed in sort of a a routine way. Saul's conversion moment, on the other hand, could be seen from space, right? 
As we sometimes say, I mean, as has been, has been coined, he has a Damascus Road experience. It's a big deal. It took blinding light and visions from God to save his religious heart, to change an insider. Now, it's easy for me to think that because I grew up going to church, I, you know, I killed it at Awana, <laughs> I have a trophies from Awana, I have parents who were Christians. It's easy for me to think that I was automatically in with God. I'm, I'm in. But here's the sobering truth. If you think those things can save you or will change you, you're far from God. You're in worse shape in many ways than the intellectual skeptical or, or the morally wayward. You're, you're blind spiritually. Only Jesus can, can save us. His grace alone can renovate your heart. And I will never tire of defining grace from this stage. Grace is getting a gift that you don't deserve. Right? None of us can do enough to, to deserve God's acceptance. Insiders and outsiders alike, we all need grace to be near to God. And one of, the, one of the most gracious ways possible, Jesus healed Saul's religious blindness and gave him gospel sight. His pedigree, his education and training, his zeal in all things, none of them are worth anything as he stands before God. Only God's humbling grace in Jesus is able to change, able to save. That's true for you. And for me, now I've got, a, I've got a diploma from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, it's hanging on my wall in my house. Uh, and, right, we hang things on our walls that are, it's kind of a show of pride. Right? We're proud of those things, uh, whether it's a photo or a diploma or something your, your two-year-old made. Right? We hang those things. And so it's true. I am proud of the training I received and the work I put in. I am proud of my master's of divinity, but it is tempting to do more with that piece of paper. To believe that it somehow earns me something before God, like that I'm more acceptable somehow, or that I'm more presentable, that instead of being on my knees, maybe I can stand on my feet before God, that it counts for something in my favor. I mean, I'd never tell you that, but I might believe it. And an MDiv is not an inherently bad thing, just like coming to church and memorizing scripture and having a, a heritage of, of faith in your family. Those are all right and good, but you cannot trust them to save you. You can't even trust them to change you. Only God's grace can change our hearts. Those things may put us in the way of his grace. That's why we do them. But they, you cannot be changed by anything but the humbling encounter of, of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So what are you trusting for change? What do you think might save you? What's hanging on the wall of your heart, so to speak? that is in danger of making you spiritually blind.
Because it takes surrender, friends, humbly surrendering to God's grace in Jesus, because you'll never be good enough on your own. You can't wait until your life is together before you come to him. Like we just sang, the invitation from Jesus, come weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. Jesus didn't come for the healthy and the righteous, but for the blind who need sight, for the sick who need healing, for the dead who need to be alive. And that's all of us, friends. Like Saul, we are changed by grace, not achievement, which means the religious insider and and the outsider alike, there is no one that cannot be changed. If there is anything that this story tells us, It's that. There's no one outside of the reach of God's grace. So you you can't be changed by achievement, only by grace. You also can't be changed alone. It's the second thing for the story. Saul is changed in community, not in isolation. Now, this is true in subtle, yet very powerful ways in this story. Consider God's direct activity in saving Saul through the lives of other Christians. I mean, his, his story is one of beautiful, courageous, faithful community. Ananias has a huge part to play here, doesn't he? I mentioned it before, but it's worth repeating. Saul is called brother before the scales even fall from his eyes. He is welcomed in as a family member. It's an invitation to belong. And later in the story, a man named Barnabas would vouch for, Saul, for Saul's story. The other Christians are a little skeptical, a little hesitant to let Paul in. And Barnabas says, no, I've seen it. He's a changed man. He vouches for him. And like Saul with the Christians around him, we all have a significant part to play in one another's lives. It takes courage. It takes vulnerability. It takes trust. But that is God's design. We cannot change in isolation, which is why we believe so strongly in gathered worship on Sunday mornings and in meeting with one another throughout the week in smaller groups in your homes. We have community groups for this purpose. And the mission of those groups is to help each of us grow in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other, and in our relationship with our neighbors, with, the, with our world. And if you're not in a, in a community group, just come talk to me. I would love to help get you plugged in so that, so that you can connect with others and you're not going it alone. We're changed in community, not in isolation. And, and we're given a practice to identify with others that we see right here in verse 18. Saul is baptized immediately after his conversion. Just like last week where the Ethiopian says, well, well there's some water, why can't we just do it right here? Saul is baptized immediately after, after he is converted And this afternoon, we are also going to celebrate life change together as a church, right? At our Olathe campus, 3 o'clock, we will all together hear and see this rich picture of, of others identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and identifying with his church. Baptism isn't just to say that I'm with Jesus, but it's to say I'm with all these people too, with the family of faith. 
This afternoon, it's, one, it's the reason why it's one of my favorite things we do is because it's a family moment together. Celebrating life change that is, that is echoed right here in this story. We are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of faith, family. And if you haven't been baptized, come talk with us. We could probably still make that happen this afternoon. Be a little tight, but we'd lo- there's water over there, so we could go do that, right? And either way, whether you're baptized this afternoon or not, come. Come and see and hear stories of this unbelievable change that happens when we encounter Jesus in a humbling way. The final thing this morning. Saul is he's changed by grace, not achievement. He's changed in community and not alone, not in isolation. And third, he's changed for mission, not for ease, not for comfort, not for himself, but for others. Look back at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go for he is cho- he's a chosen instrument of mine. I'm going to use him to carry my name to the Gentiles before officials, kings, the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul gets right to work, verse 20. He immediately starts proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. And that witness almost gets him killed in two different places. Both in Damascus, he has to escape. He's almost killed in Jerusalem, so he's shipped back to his hometown. His bearing witness to Jesus' change in his life is dangerous work. Life definitely does not get easier for Saul after coming to Jesus. His story is filled with, even characterized by, suffering, just like Jesus said it would. That's part of the mission. And if it's true for Paul, and it's true for Paul because it's true for Jesus, right? That's his story. He came as a suffering servant. If it's true for Paul, it's true for us. And if you have encountered Jesus, are you, are you telling others about that change in your life? Are you bearing witness to his saving grace? Or are you afraid of the suffering that might come from telling that story? And I don't ask that question as someone who is arrived, who has arrived there. It's often the reason why I avoid telling my story is because I know it's gonna, it may cost me. I've been challenged this week to embrace all that following Jesus means. And I was reminded this last week of of one of my favorite passages that Paul wrote, Philippians 3. It's his story of conversion and calling in his own words from his own pen. I'm going to read this this passage over you. I don't know if it will be up there or not, but just hear it. Hear all of this story in his own words. He says this, if anyone thinks... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. There's no one more Hebrew than me. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm doing it, guys. But whatever gain I thought I had in that, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Becoming like Jesus in his death so that we can know the power of new life. That's what this whole series has been about as we've been looking in Acts at the beauty of weakness, the power of surrender, and that true life is only possible on the other side of death with Jesus. And friends, he, he lives, now ready to remake you, eager to renovate your heart, longing to change you by grace in community with others for the good of all, for the renewal of all things. Don't wait until you have your life together. That day will not come. Let Jesus humble you this morning. Only then can, can you and I experience unbelievable change. Let's pray. God, that's such good news for us this morning, even as as counterintuitive as it is that, that our change is not on the other side of our of our achievement, but it's actually in being humbled and weakened by your grace. God, thank you that that's true that we can come to you as we are. We're not, we're not outside of your reach. There's no one outside of your reach. And God, that you can actually change our hearts and minds to be more like your own. I pray that would be true this morning. Even as we sing over each other, as we take the bread and the cup, as we, as we hear a benediction spoken over us, that all of those things would add up to a humbling encounter of you and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.